Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Hello everyone, it's very good to welcome you to another GodPod episode. Here we are in our little studio, and we have today your favourite Godpod people. I know they're your favourite Godpod people. Because they're the only Godpod people. <laughs> Helps. <laughs> and the ones who've been here right from the very beginning, Michael Lloyd. It's rather like the, the devil in John's Gospel, who was <laughs> sinful from the beginning. Um, hello. Sinful from the beginning. That's, that's a not very nice thought, Michael. But anyway, there you go. Michael Lloyd is here and Jane Williams. I am here, yes. Not sinful from the beginning. No, absolutely. Keeping Mike in order. Yeah. <laughs> and myself, Graham Tomlin. Uh, we've just been eating fudge. Just, I know that some people you know, write in to know, they like to know what we're eating because we know eating is a big part of Godpod. Uh, we don't have um, biscuits, but we do have slightly out of date fudge, but it's um, still quite nice though, isn't it? It is. It's gingery fudge. Very nice. I declined because it would be interesting to see whether the sell-by date is an important fact. <laughs> you will live to tell the tale, come what may. <laughs> Jane and I keel over dead halfway through the God Pod. Mike's the only one left standing. Still talking about the problem of evil. Then don't eat out-of-date fudge if that happens. So, Mike, if you just kept finish off for us, that would be very helpful. I'll Thank try. Good. So today um, we are going to uh, return to a little series we've been doing over... Um, uh, a number of Godpods in the last few months, which is looking at um, different Christian heresies and uh, analysing them, thinking about why they're heresies, why the church rejected these particular sets of ideas. Uh, in past Godpods, we've looked at ideas such as modalism or Manichaeism. Uh, if you don't know what those are, you'd have to listen to previous Godpods to find out. But today we are going to look at a um, maybe one of the earliest Christian heresies, which was known as Arianism. So um, um, I'm going to pick on Jane. Jane, do you want to tell us what Arianism is and where it came from and why it was called Arianism? I would love to. In the 4th century in Alexandria, which was one of the major uh, Christian centres in the early church, a very um, plausible and charismatic um, preacher called Arius was trying to sort out and help people think through how um, the son relates to the father. And Arius, uh, you have to remember, of course, that people don't set off to be heretics. Very few people say, wake up one morning and think, I'm going to find a heresy. People are usually trying to neaten up something, an area of inconsistency. And um, Arius thought that quite a lot of the way in which people were talking about the relationship between the son and the father left Christianity open to the charge of being um, tritheistic, so not uh, and uh, not properly monotheistic, and Arius wanted to say no. We believe in only one God, um, and then he had to work out then. So, what is the relationship of this God to the one that we call the Son? And Arius went back to passages in the Bible, like for example Proverbs eight, which talk about um, uh, God creating wisdom and then wisdom joining with God in uh, helping with the rest of creation, and saw uh, wisdom as a, a possible figure um, of Jesus, um, and suggested that um, that Jesus, that the Son, is is a is comes from the Father in a way that's different from the way creation, the rest of creation comes from the Father, but that there is um, there was a, a time, you might say, when there was only 
God without the sun. It came a great slogan, didn't it, of the Aryans. There was when he was not. They ein chanted pote, rather like a hote, football uk, crowd. Ein. Sorry? Ein pote, hote, uk, ein. Yes, well, that's as actually what Greek. they chanted, but exactly. I was Sorry. translating it as I went along. <laughs> but if any, anybody who wants to do it in Greek, do it again. <laughs> ein pote, hote, uk, ein. You can imagine that as a chant, can't you? As a song, sort of worship song, I think that's kind of what it was, wasn't it? That's what they, what they did. So yeah, sorry, sorry, Jane. I'm not, not at all. I'm just trying to imagine the kind of football matches where that could be used. Um, <laughs> but apparently, it was a very popular chant. Um, and as I say, Arius thought that what he was presenting was a biblical account of the relationship between father and son, but also um, one that made philosophical sense. So the great transcendent God um, does not uh, directly involve himself in in creation. He has a mediator between creation and himself, and this mediator is the son. Um, and uh, uh, this sounds quite plausible in all kinds of ways. It gets you out of all kinds of problems. But gradually, as um, the church um, thought about it and called a great council to think about it, um, they they realised that if you say that, then what you're actually saying is that the Son is neither fully God, so not really one with God, but ni- neither is he fully human, so he's not really one with us either. So you've created this kind of strange hybrid thing. And I might stop talking now and let one of you come <laughs> I mean, is it, is it worth um, just thinking a little bit about what can be said in favour of Arius? Because he was quite, you know, a lot of people followed him. A lot of people found him, his arguments quite plausible and quite attractive. Uh, Arianism carried on in the church for many centuries after his own lifetime. And arguably still exists in all kinds. You very often do hear that kind of yeah. um, speaking about Jesus as though Jesus is, is something in between human beings and yeah. God. He's the sort of best you could get within creation, but not divine and pretty much the jehovah's witness position on on jesus it's it's a fairly classically arian position i think um i i i would want to say that arius was concerned about two things and was right to be concerned about these two things um that he was concerned about the oneness of god uh, as Jane was saying, he didn't want to see us having three gods. He thought that would be a slide away from the huge intellectual, and moral, spiritual advance that was monotheism, uh, where everything can cohere because everything uh, is created by the same God. Anything else tears apart the fabric of, of, of reality. Um, and he was secondly concerned hugely with the otherness of God, that God is transcendent, that he is uh, not part of this world. And he felt that a doctrine of the incarnation of God becoming human, becoming part of this world, blurred that distinction. Um, now, I think he's wrong about that, but the, but the concern for God being uh, not simply part of this world and there being one of him is is absolutely sound instinct on Ares's part. And it seems that the other thing that was motivating him, and a fair bit of the more recent study on Ares seems to have emphasised this, is his doctrine of salvation. That what he's concerned about is, you know, how are we, how are we saved and how... how um, and in a sense, there's a kind of link between Arius and Pelagius, which is another another heresy that we'll probably look at at some point. See um, our forthcoming God pod on right, the subject. Pelagianism. Um, that, uh, you know, that... that Christ as an example of the best that humanity could possibly be and uh, emulating Christ as this um, 
sort of perfect creation, um, that that is somehow the way to salvation. They wanted to emphasize, they wanted to kind of put put forward a very uh, a kind of rigorous, quite demanding um, route of spiritual discipline. It said that Arius was quite a um, quite an ascetic. He was, you know, someone who um, was very serious about his Christian life and about spiritual disciplines. And he was probably quite thin because I'm not sure he ate very much. Certainly didn't eat ginger fudge, I don't think. Um, but he's described often as in, in ascetic calling, terms. Calling me an Aryan. <laughs> well, <laughs> subtle tendencies I've always noticed, Michael. Um, but, it, you know, I think that that's part of the motivation for it, you know. Placing before people an example that is that is reachable, and here is a human being uh, who has become uh, and is the best that human beings can be. This is what salvation is. It's about becoming like this. It's about becoming the best human being you can be, and placing that image before people. So that seems to have been part of his motivation, and you can see something in that as well. Um, although it falls short of um, a lot of other uh, understandings of the doctrine of salvation. And of course, he was trying to do scriptural exegesis. There are passages in the Bible which do lend themselves to this um, to this kind of explanation of the relationship between the Father and the Son. That's right. He, he saw himself in some ways as a kind of theological conservative, didn't he? As, he did. As, as yes. effectively saying, "Hey, well, look in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it says this. It says, you know, there's one God. There aren't two gods. There aren't, there's just one God." He, he saw himself as being faithful to Scripture, and by pointing to those passages that spoke about the oneness of, of God, as as you were saying, Michael. And that bring the idea of, um, because our heads can't quite get round this idea of, you know, if the Son is begotten from the Father, if the Son comes forth from the Father, then surely that must mean there was a time when the Son wasn't part of the Father. Because um, so, we think of our own parenthood. Exactly. We take yeah. the language of time and I sequence. am a father, but I'm not an eternal father. No. And there was a time when I was not a father, and I became a father at a particular moment in time when our son was born. And there is thereby a, a caution against the way we use language when we apply it to God. Uh, that there are some things that apply, uh, that's why the metaphor works, but there are some things that don't apply when you, when you apply it to God. Um, and, and that's why you need to be careful of, of, of metaphorical language, well, any kind of language used of God. So, yes, we, when we become a parent, um, you know, there's a time before there is a child there's a time before we become a parent uh, that is not as origin was going to go on to say um that is not true when you apply it to god that the, the fact that god is outside time means that um there's never a time that he wasn't the father of the son uh and that there was never a time when he was not so there's a there's a, a useful caution there about what happens to language when you apply it to god and the carefulness with which you need to do that and it seems to be all, all that's quite important in a way because I think with with a lot of heresies, maybe especially Arianism, it's quite easy to think, oh, well, we know that's a heresy. Of course, it's wrong. Um, but I always think there's something about heresy. There's this, this phrase I think um, I may have used it on previous God Pods, possibly. But um, this phrase from David Steinmetz: so, you, know, you always have to feel the power of ideas that history has judged erroneous. In other words, don't dismiss it too quickly. There was a reason why people were attracted to this. There was a reason why Arianism lasted for centuries and arguably still exists. It's quite an attractive, powerful idea. You know, it's not a it's not something you can dismiss too easily. And so those positive things about Arianism, those things that Arius was trying to preserve, those things that he was trying to be faithful to, are important to hold on to, even if at the end of the day we still want to say, Well, actually this was a heresy and so why? And in some ways he's right. 
if you start introducing a doctor in the, the incarnation, it does revolutionize your concept of God. I don't think it means that you lose the oneness of God. I don't think it means you lose the otherness of God. But it does revolutionize it. You you cannot say the same exactly the same things about God once the incarnate once you accept that an incarnation has taken place. It is a revolutionary doctrine, and as you're right, he was a theological conservative, and he was very unhappy with what the implications might be. So, do you think we should start to tell people what's actually wrong with it now that we've told them why it's so very attractive? <laughs> so you're itching to get on with that. Do the hatchet job. Oh, all right. <laughs> so. Part two of this one pod. <laughs> we said about what, what areas, um, you know, what areas might have had a point. Well, okay, what was wrong with it at the end of the day? What, why did this not, why was this not seen as a valid interpretation of what Christian faith was? One of the major reasons put forward at um, this council, the Council of Nicaea, that was gathered partly to discuss this issue uh, and was very strongly um, defended by uh, St. Athanasius uh, of Alexandria, uh, was that it does actually um, undermine the very thing that Arius was most passionate about, which is our salvation. Um, Because essentially, if... um, if the son is not fully God and not fully human, then the son has very little um, to uh, contribute to the situation that we're actually in. The son cannot bring the dynamism, the, the, the love, the forgiveness of God into the human situation. And likewise, it cannot bring it into the human situation because he's neither God nor human. So the bridge is broken at both ends. Exactly. I think that's right. And and therefore, being if, if, if Christ is fully divine, then to be in Christ is to be part of the relationship that is God. Um, but if Christ is not divine, then being in Christ doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't actually bring what is our human destiny and, and aim, which is to be taken up into uh, the relationship and the love of God. I guess Athanasius's point was, it seems to me, that you know, I mean, it's back to what you were saying, Mike. If, you know that Aris was concerned with the transcendence of God, you know, the distinction between the creation and the creator, and in a sense, he was right to do that. There is a very important distinction that there's not a continuity between creation and creator. You know, the world is not divine, but God is, and so there is that vital line to be drawn, if you like, between creator and creation, and that's why he was nervous about saying that. Jesus Christ, this man who was in one sense a created being because he shared in full, hu- full humanity, was a human being, was also divine because that did seem to blur the line. But I think precisely when you come onto this question of salvation that you've raised, Jane, and I think this is the point that, er- that Athanasius is trying to make, unless God in some way crosses that line, enters into the human condition, then actually there's no way we can possibly be saved. Um, you know, if if Christ is as far from God as we are, then there's nothing he can really do for us. Unless God somehow enters into the human situation, begins to transform it from within, then we are we are we are we are lost in our as the way Athanasius would put it, you know, we are um corrupt, we are kind of dying, we are this this flawed, broken, damaged uh, race. And unless something happens to reverse that process, then there's no future for us. And that's what I think Athanasius was trying to say. Well, God has actually entered into the human situation and begun to transform it from within. He has crossed that line, as it were. And that, and that's 
the great patristic doctrine of the doctrine of the fathers that that which is not assumed is not healed that which is not brought into contact with god uh, is, is is not put right um, we mortal finite fallen things unless we are brought into the presence of the eternal holy god and brought into touch with th- that we, we our finitude and our fallenness not put right uh, and in, in arianism christ is no longer not not only not uh, human, but he's not divine, and therefore no contact is made. There's also um, this uh, this suggestion of real distaste for bodiliness, um, uh, as though you know the the wonderful transcendent God really couldn't bear to sully himself uh, with um, with created life. Uh, and so another um, really important thing that's defended by the rejection of Arianism is that God actually loves creation and you know fallen and uh, decaying and and all of the other things that you've just said it may be but it is also beloved um, and it is uh, uh, and so that God's willingness to share it in the person of the son says something really importantly affirming about what God God uh, how God sees us created beings and that's one of the revolutions of the incarnation yeah. that well I say revolutions I mean of course the the positive view of creation is there in the Old Testament but it is ratcheted up uh, to the nth degree by a doctrine of incarnation God not only creating um, and and working within creation but becoming part of it that exalts it and ennobles it <clears throat> in a to a far greater degree and and to a far greater degree than somebody with a greek mindset at the time would have been comfortable with and means that salvation isn't salvation out of this dreadful creation but is the salvation of creation it's not salvation out of my physicality or it's and, and as tom wright says it's not salvation from the world it's salvation of the world yeah and it's the sense that on the one hand God reaches down into the human condition in the person of Christ, sort of crosses the line into into creation and becomes and, and takes on a created form, as it were. But also the direction is the other way as well. Humanity is, you know, the possibility uh, emerges that humanity might be kind of raised into the very presence of of God Himself, which is what we think of within the Ascension. That that you know that Christ returns to the Father. And our human nature is taken up into the into the Godhead, so that we can share in in um, even as created beings, we can share in God's life. Now, again, on an Aryan scheme where that line is very thickly drawn between creation and creator, then there's no real possibility of transgressing that line either way. God can't enter into our human experience to transform it. We can't enter into God's life and share that either. And there's that wonderful collect for christmas eve isn't there from the prayer book about how god has unite gathered into one things earthly and things heavenly uh, in the person of christ and that then makes for the marriage of heaven and earth which you see in in revelation 21 um this great wedding ceremony uh which is the, which is the marriage of heaven and earth or the, the whole of created reality now um, at one with and in touch with its creator I was in, I was intrigued recently. I was reading a, a um, an article by um, it's by Hilaire Belloc, the sort of great Catholic um, uh, sort of controversialist, really. I suppose in the early twentieth century and poet exactly. He, he wrote something on on Arianism, and he was emphasising how 
how kind of aristocratic Arianism was, that it always appealed to the aristocracy, it appealed to the army, it appealed to those who were, it wasn't, didn't sort of have popular appeal, and it carried on after Arius's time for many centuries in, in, in Europe until Europe became sort of more fully Catholic. Arianism was still quite a, a you know, attractive thing for a lot of the barbarian kings around Europe in the, the um, centuries beyond uh, afterwards um, in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th centuries and so on. And you can kind of see why, you know, Arianism might generate a kind of quite a hierarchical, slightly snobbish society because it depicts Christ as this as this sort of, you know, supreme, wonderful figure that we look up to and you aspire to, which is kind of, you know, only those who are at the sort of top end of society can somehow somehow reach. And actually those of you down the bottom who actually feel yourself to be rather rather lowly and not terribly important is so far so far beyond, so far uh, away from you that you can't really relate to him. Whereas it seems to me that the Athanasian proper orthodox doctrine of the incarnation actually has God descending right into the very depths and saying it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an aristocrat or you're a king or you're a peasant or you're a whatever you are, actually Christ has entered into to transform the whole of human life, not just to give you this sort of aristocratic vision of, of, um, of moral um, improvement. The other reason why Arianism was rejected was not just because of its doctrine of salvation and the fact that no contact is really made between uh, God and his creatures, but also the doctrine of revelation, that uh, if Jesus is divine, then when we look at him, when we look at this human life and all its interactions in good times and in in pain and in struggle and in suffering and in death, you see something about the nature and the person of God. You see the the final (laughs) revelation of of the person and nature and love of God. If that's not true, if you break that link between Jesus and and the Father, between the Son and the Father, uh, then actually Jesus doesn't tell us a whole lot about God because he isn't God and we're left to guess what God is like. We've never seen God in the only fully comprehensible form that we can ever have, which is another human being. We can relate to another human being, we can understand another being, we can empathise with, begin to see what they're saying, what they're passionate about, how they react, how they respond. Um, and with, that, with Arianism, you, you never have that. God is so remote, so other, we really don't know a whole lot about him. Yeah, it always makes me think of, um, of uh, Moonrock, in the sense that before 1960, whatever it was, when human beings actually walked on the moon, we could kind of guess what the moon was made of and Jeez. what it looked like. And well, we might have a sort of an idea roughly by looking at it from a distance as to what the moon might be made of. But, but you know, there was a moment when human beings walked on the moon and, and took back moon rock and moon dust back to Earth. So now we know, you know, we know what the moon is made out of because we've got a bit of real moon here as it were. Um, and we're not guessing anymore. We're not, we don't have to guess what the moon's made of. We know what it's made of because we can actually touch it and feel it and analyze see it, it and handle it, analyze it. And it seems to me that's a little bit like what the, the classic Christian doctrine of the incarnation says, that in Jesus Christ we have real God in front of us. We know what God is like. You can say, you know, we don't have the whole of God, but we've got real God here in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and so therefore we can say something with confidence about 
what God is like. And in particular, we can say that God is love because Jesus Christ is love. Without that, we would not really be sure of it. We'd be guessing. We'd be saying it would be quite rather nice if God was love, but we wouldn't actually see it in practice and in reality. Which is why Christianity has always been the religion that majored most on love, yeah. because partly because of the loving nature of Jesus, partly because of the loving relationship within the Trinity that Jesus reveals. And Christian faith is the only one that says God is love. That, Intrinsically. In, essentially the definition of God. But it's just without the incarnation, you couldn't really say that. Without a kind of fully classic, with, you know, with Arianism, you could not ultimately say that God was love. And so um, Athanasius and others were able to say that Arius' problem is he's picked little bits of the Bible um, that fit a particular case. What he isn't doing is looking at the God of the Bible, um, the God who does demonstrate his commitment and love from the first page to the last and um, and fully instantiates that in coming in, in Jesus Christ. He's not doing theology. He's not doing theology. He's, he's just taking proof texts. What theology does is try to bring together the whole whole wisdom of the scriptures and the church's tradition to sort of say this is what we believe about about God. And Arius, Arius didn't do that. He just took out a few te- texts that seemed to say something but then ignored a whole lot of other scriptural evidence that said something much richer and much stronger. Well, there it is, Arianism. We don't recommend it, in case you were wondering, <laughs> just for the avoidance of doubt. <laughs> Exactly. Good. Thank you, Mike. Well, I'm glad that you've cleared that up for us. <laughs> well, Somebody had to. Yes, we are Aryan. Um, anyway, I hope that you found that uh, helpful discussion. We'll be looking at one or two other heresies and God pods coming up before too long. Um, but uh, that's what we have for the time being. Um, uh, we'll be back before long with yet another God pod very soon. And um, so it's goodbye from me, Graham Tomlin. And it's goodbye from me, Michael Lloyd. And also from me, Jane Williams. That was God Pod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>